are we? Good, responsive. That's good. Day after Christmas. I'm, I'm happy to see that. Certainly, certainly, uh, I want to highlight the fact that we are reading through the Bible in a year as a church. And I know that's a daunting task, and some of you are like, I'm never doing that. Forget that. But let me just encourage you to pause before you <laughs> automatically turn it down. How many of you have, and you don't have to raise your hands, 15 or 20 minutes a day that you can give to the Lord in reading his word? And there is a great benefit when we read of all of scripture together. Because what tends to happen is we tend to stay in what we com- we're comfortable with. And we can tend to stay in the same passages. And, um, and so I think it's great to get the full context of scripture. So we would love for you to join us in that journey. And if you get behind, it's okay. Just keep plugging away. Uh, it will bless your soul if you take the time to dedicate to God's word. Well, let me invite you now to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Christmas is officially over, and now we look forward to a new year. But I I don't know about you, but I find this to be kind of a strange season, a strange time. Year after year, it seems like without exception, I, I find myself asking the question, is that it? Like, it's over? Just like that, another Christmas day passes. All the energy, all the emotion, all the decorating, the presents, the food, the expectations, it's gone in a flash. And I try, I tend to find myself with the post-Christmas blues. Anybody else with me just kind of find themselves? Every, Every night on the way home, it's just like, I don't know what it is, but I can be tempted to just have like this, this light depression just on everything's over. And I find myself asking the question, now what? Often there's this empty feeling about it all. We've spent all month celebrating Christ's birth, but now what? It makes me think of that first Christmas 2,000 years ago. For hundreds of years, the Jews waited for their promised Messiah. But he didn't come as they expected. He didn't come as a warrior ready to take over the world. He came as a baby born to a young virgin. But think about that. After his birth, there was like 30 years of not much going on. All this excitement this one night, the shepherds heard it. The magi came. All this excitement. And then for 30 years, Jesus is not really heavy on the scene. And I I imagine... And think about, like, is that what the shepherds thought in the, in the Magi who came to see him? Did they think, now what? We have this promised Messiah, but, but where's he at? We can find ourselves there today as well, finding, trying to find hope after Christmas. And we can easily slip into old patterns, right? Isn't that how life goes? Some big event comes, we get all hyped for it. And then as soon as we know it, it's gone and we we find ourselves slipping back into old habits. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves forgetting about the hope of Christmas. We can find ourselves forgetting about our great Savior who came to take away our sin. And even when Jesus appeared back on the scene 30 years after his birth, 
He performed all these miracles, did all these amazing things. But then suddenly he was crucified on the cross. And I can imagine the disciples and the followers of Jesus asking, now what? My prayer for us today is that we would not just remember and celebrate Christmas once a year. But rather it would be in our hearts all throughout the year. We don't receive God's grace for salvation and then have to fend for ourselves. God's grace takes us all the way to eternity. Our joy didn't end yesterday. It carries us on forever. And that's the beauty of Christmas. So let's jump into the word this morning. Follow along with me in Titus 2 as I read starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of that first Christmas when Jesus was born. Oh, the hope that was in that manger on that day. Hope that the shepherds probably could not perceive. I don't really think Joseph and Mary understood fully what their baby meant for them. But Lord, Christmas is not just to be celebrated once a year. The hope of Jesus coming is for every single day of our lives. Lord, something that I pray that you would help us remember. Lord, keep us from slipping into old patterns and forgetting the fact that Jesus came died, but he lives on, and he lives in us. Oh, Lord, would you give us hope this morning? If there are anybody here who find themselves with the Christmas blues, Lord, would you remind us all this morning that joy is forever. Joy doesn't come and go with Christmas Day. Joy stays because of that first Christmas. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts this morning We need you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for the remainder of our time, I want to talk about how grace trains us. Now what? Life after Christmas, we have this grace that goes with us and trains us. Listen, God's grace is not just for salvation. In fact, his grace is with us forever. It never leaves us. And in this passage, we're going to see three ways that God's grace trains us beyond our salvation. The first way is this. God's grace trains us to renounce the things of this world. God's grace trains us to renounce the things of this world. Look again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared Bringing salvation for all people, training us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I, I don't want to assume that you understand what grace is. And we all know what assuming can do, right? You can do bad things. And that's all I'm going to say about that. We must not assume, and I cannot assume that you understand what grace is. And I've defined grace in the past by this. It's, it's undeserved favor. It's when we get what we don't deserve. That's grace. So right off the bat, it's important for us to understand that the grace of God is completely undeserved. When we read the grace of God that has appeared, we must understand this is something given by God that we did not do anything to earn, nor could we do anything to earn. The very word grace means we can't achieve it. It's a gift from God. And notice, it's God's grace that brought us salvation. And this is absolutely critical for every person to understand. We cannot earn our salvation. No one can ever go before God and say, hey, God, I think I was good enough to earn my way into heaven. Because the reality is none of us are good enough for that. None of us are nailing it. Anybody, anybody this week just have a perfect score on the, the, the grade of life? <laughs> you just nail it on every corner. You were patient driving. You were, you were so thankful during Christmas, and when your kids got upset because they didn't get what you want, you were very gracious and kind in the way that you acted towards them. You didn't eat too much food. You made sure that you <laughs> kept the right thing. The reality is, each and every one of us, you take one day of our life, and that's enough sin to condemn us for hell to hell forever. God's salvation is undeserved. God's salvation cannot be earned. It's not like Christmas and Santa Claus where only the good boys and girls get presents. He's making his list. He's checking it twice. Going to find out who's naughty or nice. By the way, that's a pretty creepy story, isn't it? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Santa Claus sounds like some kind of creeper to me. <laughs> but that's not the way God works. He's not looking for the good boys and girls in order to grant them salvation. The reality is we're all on the naughty list. We understand that, right? And so when we understand that the grace of God has appeared to all men bringing salvation, salvation is an absolute gift from God. Notice verse 11, it says, bringing salvation for all people. What, what is Paul getting at here exactly? What does he mean that God has given salvation to all men. Does, it, does this mean everyone is saved? There are people who believe that. It's called universalism, that everybody is going to be saved. Is that what Paul means here? That's not the case at all. If it were, then why would he go on saying that God's grace trains us to renounce the things of this world? If, if God saves everyone, then why do we even need to worry about our sin? If everyone goes to heaven in the end, then can't we just live our own lives? Eat, drink, and be merry? Why would Paul here give us this understanding that grace trains us to renounce 
unrighteousness if in the end we all go to heaven anyway. We must understand that we need grace. We need to be saved. It's not that every person will be saved, but rather salvation is available for all men. God is, shows no favor to any person. He, he doesn't care more about a certain person than other people. Salvation is granted and available for all men. Everyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ can be saved. So we must understand that that's what it's talking about here. As I've already mentioned, salvation is not the end of the story, is it? Just like Christmas, it isn't just for the end of the year to remember. Because of the good news of Jesus and the grace that was given to us through Jesus Christ, we have hope for our everyday lives. God's grace trains us to renounce the things of this world. To train. What does the word train mean here? You may have different scriptures. Maybe yours says teach or to instruct. It means to educate. You see, grace isn't something that only helps our past. It actually helps our present by instructing us. It's very much like education. Grace takes us to school because we are unfinished products. Are you humble enough to see that and admit it? That you need a teacher. And there's no better teacher for us than God's grace. Nobody, as I said, is nailing it 100% of the time. In fact, the older I get, the more I realize how much I fail. You find that out? Like, have you lived long enough to realize, like, you don't, like, grow in salvation and realize you need God less and less. You actually grow to realize, man, I need God far more than I ever realized back then when I was super arrogant. Very childish. That's what grace does. And here in the first part of verse 12, it instructs us to renounce a couple things. And renouncing, that word means to deny something. It means to disown it. It means to turn away, turn your back on it, be done with it, cast it aside. Grace instructs us, teaches us, educates us to cast aside a couple things. You see, all believers are in the school of life. And grace is our teacher. But this is no ordinary teacher. I'm sure many of you, when you think of class and you think of going back to school, there's this dread that comes into your heart. <laughs> like, oh. I, have you ever had dreams after school and you're dreaming that you're back in school and it's the end of the semester <laughs> and you have not done any work for that class and that's the last class that you need to graduate? And I wake up in this cold sweat and realize, oh, praise God, I've already graduated, I'm already done. We can have this dread towards school, and, and some of the reason is, is because we have forgotten most everything that we learned. And how much time did we waste learning stuff that we didn't even need to know? But the reality with grace is that we need every lesson that grace teaches us. We need everything that grace has to offer us. Grace does not waste our time. Grace trains us well. And the one thing we can all relate with is the fact that we have garbage in our life that needs to be removed. And grace trains us to do that. How exactly does grace do that? First of all, grace reveals our sin. 
grace reveals our sin. Apart from Christ, we have blinders to the reality of our sin. We don't see it for what it is. In fact, we love sin and we think it's good. We find ourselves justifying it, don't we? We find ourselves making excuses. We try to find ourselves like tampering down the seriousness of it. But the reality is, is grace reveals our sin. Now, now they may not be something that we would normally say because it's a painful process, isn't it, to have sin revealed in your heart? But isn't that God's grace? Like if you ever had a serious illness and it was medication and it was doctors that helped you get through it, aren't you glad that you went to somebody who was able to see what was going on? Like grace helps us live. Grace reveals our sin and we need it to be revealed because we are blind to it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We are all born with blinders on. We're blind to the ways of God. We're not born loving God. No one ever was born loving Jesus. Nobody. We were all born with blinders on. John 3 says the following. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You see, the light exposes the darkness and we hate that apart from Christ. That's, we're all born hating the light because we don't want to be found out. That's why we hide our secrets. That's why we hide our sins because we don't want anybody to know the truth. But when we actually expose ourselves to the light is when we find hope. <laughs> Listen to what Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. We're all ignorant. Why are we ignorant? It's due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The reason why we need grace is because we are blind to the ways of the Lord. We live in the futility of our minds we can't understand God, but grace takes the blinders off so that we can see sin for what it truly is. Grace also gives us a distaste for sin, doesn't it? Grace gives us a, dist a distaste for sin. As we grow in Christ, we begin to love what God loves and hate what he hates. You could say our taste buds change. Any Coke fans out there? Praise you. You guys are awesome. Have you tried the new Coke Zero, by the way? It is money. So good. I, so I grew up drinking Coke. Uh, now, let me understand. Let me all, let you all understand. It's called pop, right? We understand that. The right terminology is pop. It's not soda. Soda is something different. I don't know what soda is, but it's not pop. And it's not Coke. I love the South. My mom's from Georgia. But, like, I don't like going to a restaurant and saying I want a Coke and somebody asking me what kind. I mean, what do you mean what kind? I want a Coke. But I love Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola has trained me to hate every other 
kind of soda pop like that, right? Like Pepsi is disgusting. Can we just all say amen to that? <laughs> just kidding. If you like Pepsi, it's okay. You might be in the lower part of heaven, but you'll be all right. <laughs> but, again, again, God loves every pop drinker, or maybe he doesn't because pop's really not good for us. Why are we having this conversation in the first place? But Coke trained me to despise everything else. And that's what grace does. The more we taste the grace of God, the more we hate the things that God hates, the more we can't stand to be in sin's presence, the more we have conviction over our sin, the more we have sorrow over what we've done, the more we try to bring it to the light, the less we try to hide our sin. That's what grace does. Grace gives us a deeper sensitivity to our sin. And we hate it. That's God's grace. That's how God's grace works. Let me ask you, do you see that in your life? Is grace training you to renounce the things of this world? It doesn't mean we suddenly hate sin altogether and never sin again. The reason why we still sin is because we still love it. So it's not about perfection. But we stop making excuses. We find ourselves mourning over our sin, not to a place of depression and despair that we run away from God, but the fact that we come before him knowing that he forgives us because of his grace, but we still have that sorrow over it. We have conviction over our sin, and our conviction is quicker and quicker. Do you find that? Do you find that in your life? Like when you first come to Christ, there's sin that it takes you a long way, a long while to repent, but the, the more you grow up in Christ, the quicker repentance comes for you. That's the way grace works. It reveals our sin, and then it gives us a love for grace and a distaste against sin. Make no mistake, it will be a process for the rest of your lives. Until Christ returns, we will struggle with sin, but there is progress that takes place. And when we see that, we find confirmation that indeed the grace of God has saved us. God's grace trains us to renounce the things of this world. Here's the second way grace trains us. God's grace trains us how to live for Christ now. God's grace trains us how to live for Christ now. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And God's grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God's grace doesn't just save us at salvation. God's grace doesn't just teach us to renounce sin, but it also teaches us the positive side of that. We're not just taught to rid our lives of things, but we're also taught to add to them. So we're called to put off our old life and put on the new life. And Paul here in Titus says to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And when you consider what the worldly life looks like, isn't a good word is, is a lack of self-control, right? Isn't that what worldly living is? It's just a lack of self-control. Control, where we don't have control of ourselves. We 
do whatever we want, but we're a slave to our own cravings. We have a hard time saying no to what we want. And the world doesn't understand the person who doesn't give in to their impulses, does it? The world doesn't understand. And without Christ, it's impossible to please him. And that's why the world hates Christ and why the world hates Christians, because they just don't get it. They can't make sense of people who fight against sin. But the reality is, as Christ said, die to yourselves. The world says, have it your way. Christ says, consider others more important than yourselves. The world says, don't let anyone get in the way of your happiness. Do you see the difference here? Christ says the heart is deceitful above all things, while the world says follow your heart. The way we as Christians live our lives is so different from the world, isn't it? But here is the thing I have found to be absolutely true. When I allow grace to train me how I am to live in Christ, life goes so much better, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that our circumstances get easier. Sometimes that's what we expect and that's why some people reject Christ. is because they think somehow because I've come to Jesus, my life is going to get easier on the outside. Just like Aaron preached about the Prince of Peace. Jesus didn't come to bring peace with all people here on this earth right now, Jesus came to bring peace inside between us and God. Grace trains us out of peace and joy despite our circumstances around us. Grace shows us that there is a better way to live. Grace not only saves us from our past, it not only trains us to fight against sin, it also gives light to our path. I remember this particular Saturday. Uh, it was a Saturday morning. It was still dark out, which is a horrible way to start a Saturday, isn't it? <laughs> and I had some church event that I was getting ready for. And, you know, th the house that we were living in at the time, all the bedrooms were like in one hallway. And so you turn on the lights, the, all their doors are cracked already. It's like, I don't want to wake any kids up. Nikki's still sleeping. And so I'm just going to get make my way through the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, in the dark, so that I don't wake anybody up. And so I boldly walk into the living room. Mind you, I had three kids at this time. You should never walk anywhere in the dark when you have children. And lo and behold, right in the pathway from the hallway to the kitchen was this large, I mean, it, it's like this tall, this wide, this calico critter mansion. Let's just say Godzilla had a field day on that morning. And I had full walk right into the Calico Mansion and crushed I don't know how many windows. And I also ripped up my shins and found myself in a lot of pain. Here's the thing. What would it have hurt if I would have turned the light on real quick just to get a glance of what I was walking into? And yet I didn't. And I found myself upset that one of my kids had left their calico mansion there instead of taking the, the right opportunity to turn the light on to see what was before me. And we can treat God's grace that way, can't we? It's right there, offered to us. All we got to do is flip on the switch 
and it gives light to our path. We have God's word before us, and how often do we just leave it sitting at home, and Sunday morning we're scrambling to find it when his grace is offered us in the promises of his word. God's grace that sheds light on the way that we ought to live teaches us self-control, teaches us the promises of God's word, which is what we have to lean on. That's why we're doing this read through the Bible in a year. Not to be legalistic, but just to challenge ourselves to take in the word of God. God's grace is offered us primarily through his scriptures. Are you turning your life to the light of God's word? This is what ultimately trains us in how to live for Christ. And we get Jesus when we seek after his word. God is faithful, isn't he? He's faithful to us, not to leave us on our own. He will, does not leave us on our own. He's faithful to not give up when we need lots of grace. Aren't you glad that God isn't like an insurance company? Where you got to make a large claim and then what happens often? Oh, see ya, we're done. Like, we're in need of God's grace every moment of our lives. And God never gets tired of giving his grace to his people, amen. Now, he'll correct us. He'll hurt us at times. He'll, he'll spank us when we need it, but he does it lovingly. He cares for us. God's grace trains us. God's grace trains us how to live for Christ now. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's the third way that God's grace trains us. God's grace trains us to be patient for Christ's return. God's grace trains us to be patient for Christ's return. Let's be honest with one another. Who at times finds themselves weary in this battle called life? Who, underst who understands the grace that saves us? You understand the grace that teaches us to renounce the ungodly things in this world and to live for God's glory, yet you still find yourselves exhausted from the battle. You ever find yourself there? I just want to give up. I just want to be done. That's why it's so important for us to not forget these last two verses. Grace doesn't just take care of our past. Grace doesn't just help us with the present, but grace helps us prepare for the future. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here is the hope for you. Jesus is coming back again. The one who redeemed you from your sin, the one who has purified you as his own possession, he's coming back. And listen, it will be nothing like Christmas. No more baby Jesus for us. We get the warrior Christ who will put an end to all of our sin, all of our struggles, 
all of our suffering. What, what keeps us in the battle? It's knowing that the war has already been won. Do you know that? Your greatest problem has already been taken care of on the cross. And so when you face the battles of life, when you want to give up, let me remind you that Jesus is coming back on a horse, a white horse. He's coming to destroy everything that bogs us down. And when he comes back, he will reign forever. He will once and for all secure his bride for himself. He will once and for all purify us from all sin. So brothers and sisters, if you've repented of your sin this morning, if you placed your faith in Christ, your ending is with Christ reigning forever. So if you find yourself in a place of despair post-Christmas, remember that. Remember Jesus isn't sleeping in a manger. He isn't relaxing in heaven. He's preparing a place for you. He's preparing for you to come home. So be zealous for good works. Pursue him and his word. Let his grace train you to renounce the things of this world. Let his grace train you how to live now. And live this life with hope. Knowing that one day soon, he is returning for his bride. And if you find yourself in a place where you aren't in the family of God, never repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, today can be the day that the grace of God appears to you, bringing salvation. Repent, therefore, of your sin. Acknowledge it before God that has separated you from him, that you can't do anything to earn it. You can't outdo your bad stuff in order to be right with God. But Jesus has taken care of that already on the cross. If you have questions about that, we'd love to spend some time. Aaron Scholl, one of our, our elders is here. Zach, myself, we'd love to talk further about it. But for Christians... We have all the hope in the world that we need, don't we? Christmas didn't end yesterday. Christmas is just a reminder of what we can remember every day. That Jesus came once and he's coming one more time. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. But we look forward to that. He's coming. He's going to take us away from all of our sins and our suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for your grace that sustains us, your grace that saved us, your grace that teaches us to renounce ungodliness, that trains us to live self-controlled, godly lives for you. And Lord, oh, I can testify that when we live according to your grace, when we live according to your ways, it's not you restricting us, it's actually you freeing us from our sin. Oh Lord, your ways are good. Would you open our eyes to see that reading your word is not a burden that we're supposed to do. Reading your word is a gift because it's your grace where we read your promises. And so God, free us from any legalistic ideas that we may have with reading scripture. Free us from any legalism of getting up in the mornings or spending time in the evenings in prayer and in your word. 
Yes, we should do those things, God, but it brings us life because it's communing with you and you give grace. Oh, Lord, all we have is Christ. Jesus, you are our life. So, Lord, would you encourage us this morning? Would you allow us to leave refreshed in you? Not because our circumstances are great, not because we had a wonderful Christmas, but because you are reigning on your throne and you are preparing a place for us and you are going to come back and once and for all win your bride. Thank you that the war is over, but Lord, we ask for your grace in the battle to keep plugging away, to keep fighting, knowing that you are there interceding on our behalf. Father, thank you for the great grace and the great hope that we have in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you now to stand as we sing in response.